It's Monday, August 25th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So it's pretty hot today, but I wouldn't exactly call it tropical climes. And yet, there are certain times of day when the citizens retire and take their clothes off and perspire. And soon I will be getting to why I'm quoting this song. But first, I was uh, puzzling about Imran Khan. Of course, you were too, right? So this is the guy who's leading all these marches in Islamabad. He's a big political dissident figure in Pakistan. And he seems very compelling. There's a lot about Pakistan to protest. But I couldn't quite get my head around him. He's a former cricket star. So that's not disqualifying. I mean, uh, Vitaly Klitschko is the mayor of Kiev, right? You could be a former sports star and still do a lot of good in your country. But he seems to say kind of simplistic things. And so based on a tweet from uh, Tunku Varadajan, I came across an article by another Imran. So it's Imran on Imran analysis, a guy named Imran Saeed. And he just, he nailed it. He nailed it with a phrase, a phrase so good that uh, the New York Times wound up picking it up. So Imran Saeed, who's uh, an American, who's actually, uh, I think a cardiologist, is analyzing Imran Khan. And he admits, you know, I worshiped this guy as a boy. Imran Saeed said that he had a man crush on Imran Khan because he was such a great cricket player. But now I look at his rallies and, well, he lists like 10 things that are wrong. I'll read two of them. Seven, his cricket analogies are becoming increasingly lame. And really, if that's why you like the guy in the first place, that's going to hurt. And two, he's lived up to his reputation of Im the Dim by claiming that computers would end corruption. Yeah, it's impossible to cook the books on Excel. And so he then says... You know, Khan is just full of seemingly simple solutions and absolutist statements. And here he lowers the boom. He is the Sarah Palin of Pakistan. And that just nails it, right? That tells you everything you need to know about Imran Khan. I mean, I don't know that Khan ever said, I could see Peshwar from my house, you know? And of course, I'm sure Imran Khan can name some specific newspapers. But that really puts Imran Khan in context. So for our interviews today, it's going to be Mad Dogs and Englishmen because there is a noonday sun. I will be playing the part of the Mad Dog. Here are a couple of our Englishmen. We'll be talking to Adam Higginbotham, who wrote about a bomb that exploded in a Reno casino about 25 years ago. Crazy story. But up first, Richard Reeves, who's with the Brookings Institution, wrote a great piece. And there's an interesting video, not about income inequality per se, but about an even more fundamental idea, income mobility. Income inequality is the hottest meta-socioeconomic issue going. The documented, demonstrable gaps in wealth and income in America are big and getting bigger, and that's a problem. But I have to say, America never has actually been that flat a society compared to now. That's true. It used to be a lot flatter. Things were less spiky in the 50s, and the middle class was closer to the upper class in the 1970s. But America usually was more unequal than Europe, and it was even more unequal than its ideal. I mean, if you poll America, Americans and say define fairness, they'll give you some version that looks like a Scandinavian country, and they have for a while. But the saving grace in all of this was not exactly equality, but opportunity. It wasn't just a way to change the conversation. You know, someone would bring up equality, and then someone else would say, yes, but you have the chance to get ahead. I mean, that was actually true. America actually did offer a bona fide chance for advancement for every American to improve his or her fortunes. But now the situation, even on that front, is reversing. The American version of equality is no longer looking like it once did. According to the Brookings Institution's Richard Reeves, we're becoming less equal and less mobile. The land of opportunity is now the land of limited opportunity. Richard Reeves joins me now. Hello, sir. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe our listeners heard it just in that sentence, but I will say this. You're English. What did you think of the American idea of mobility and equality before you came to our shores? So you're right. I'm British, to be be technically accurate. I'm half English and half Welsh. Welsh, Otherwise, my mother will get upset with me. So I obviously knew that there was this very strong sense the American dream, Horatio Alger, equality of opportunity, was a hugely important part of the rhetoric uh, of kind of American politics and American society. But as I've been studying it over the last couple of years, two things have really struck me. One is this is even more deeply rooted than I thought. And then second thing that struck me, and this is obvious from lots of studies, that it's just not as true as Americans have historically liked to think that it is. And so I've simultaneously become convinced that the ideal is even stronger than I thought, but that America is even further away from it than I thought. And that's the toxic combination that you referred to in your introduction. Mm. So what are some ways in which mobility really has uh, declined in our system? Well, I think it's worth saying it looks as if it's flat. It's stagnant. Um, It may have declined for some and and not for others. But the overall picture is it hasn't got any better for at least half a century, which given how much growth there's been, how much opportunity there is, you know, how much more people are going to college, you'd really on the face of it hope that it had improved rather than sort of staying static at best. And some of the factors that lie behind that are continued very big gaps uh, on racial grounds, particularly between black and white Americans. You see increasing divides by income background in terms of educational achievement from pre-K all the way through K through 12 and through college access and college completion. You see the education system, if anything, widening the gaps between the rich and the poor rather than closing those gaps. And then you see very big differences geographically. So there are some parts of the U.S. which are doing much better than others and seeing more upward mobility and others that are really declining, the Midwest and the South in particular, and where you see very low rates of social mobility. So kind of combination of those sorts of factors seem to be what's really kind of putting the brakes on this American idea of opportunity. Yeah, you sketch out, and, and there's a brilliant video, and we'll link to it on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. facebook.com slash slategist, of you with Legos. And you sketch out who is mobility, which quintile, one-fifth of each part of society, who's it working out for? And it turns out, perhaps not shockingly, but starkly, for white people, the idea of mobility really is alive. And if you're born in the bottom 20%, you have a very good shot of winding up in the top 20%, which is kind of amazing. And so, a little less depressingly, because no one can help if they're white, the college-educated. But if you are college-educated, same thing. You could be born in that bottom 20%, you have a very good chance of winding up in any of the other quintiles. For black Americans, totally different picture. And I thought really interestingly, for people born to a one-parent family, you know, very little social mobility. Also, what that shows is the complexity of of this question, right, and the need to be really objective about what's going on here and, and not fall into kind of partisan traps on either left and right. And what's happening is that you see overlapping disadvantages will affect the same people, and advantages will affect the same people. So it's not as if, oh, this is a social issue or a cultural issue about racism or segregation or family formation, or it's an economic issue about access to financial resources and so on. It is a combination of all those things, and different kinds of disadvantage compound each other. But everyone agrees that there is a very, very big black-white gap, and it's black Americans in particular who are having a very, very difficult time in terms of being born at the bottom and staying stuck at the bottom. And actually, the truth is that it will be impossible for the U.S. to get close to its ideal unless something is done about lack of upward mobility for black Americans. Are the fixes for the issue of mobility 
the same as the fixes for the issue of inequality? No, they're not. They are related, but I think it's very important, as you've just implied, to, to be clear in our distinction between the two. So whilst it, I think it's ironically kind of economically easy but politically difficult to do something about income inequality, it's economically easy in the sense that what you do is you take money from people who've got lots of it and give it to people who haven't. You just redistribute money from A to B. It's obviously very politically difficult to do that because when you do that, you're taking money off people. Around mobility, there are different kinds of solutions which may actually have some of the other problems, uh, maybe kind of politically easier in some ways. But there you're talking about less cash transfers and more around services. So we take quality pre-K as an example, parenting programs, home visiting programs, paying quality teachers who are willing to teach in struggling schools more and so on. None of those on the face of it will have any impact on measured income inequality whatsoever. Right? So universal pre-K will do nothing for measured levels of income inequality today because you're not giving more income to those poor families. What you're doing is you're giving more opportunity the children in those poor families. Now, both are important, and they're obviously going to overlap, but I do think for policymakers and people who think about this, it's really terribly important to keep in mind which kind of inequality are you most worried about right now, and which kind of inequality will this policy address. So the minimum wage, for example, will do something to help those people who are kind of in the middle, but it doesn't help those who are right at the bottom. And it doesn't necessarily help in terms of intergenerational mobility. It might, but probably at the margins, whereas universal quality pre-K and a better K through 12 could have a big effect on mobility and no effect on income inequality, at least today. That's not to say one is better or better or worse than the other, but let's be clear in this debate about inequality, which is hugely important and great that we're having it, let's just be clear about what we're talking about. Richard V. Reeves is a fellow at the Brookings Institution. His medium is journalism and also Lego. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. In April of 1980, the bomb squad cordoned off an area around Harvey's Wagon Wheel Casino in Lake Tahoe and gave the order to ignite a switch inside what was called the machine. The machine was a metal box with so complicated an array of switches that no one was sure if this attempt at diffusement would work. It didn't. The results were a massive explosion. How massive? Well, the new Kindle single about the incident is called A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite because that describes what was in the metal box. Adam Higginbotham wrote about the explosion and the twisted genius who left a five-story crater in Lake Tahoe one day. Hello. Good afternoon. So who finds this metal box? Let's go back a day before it exploded. Who finds it? I think the slot shift supervisor, who was a guy named Bob Vinson, found it around six o'clock in the morning. And then what does he do? Then he called security, and security came up to have a look at it. And um, the security guard who first came to have a look at it was extremely alarmed because he had the week before just taken a course in letter bombs. And he noticed that beside this mysterious grey box that was sitting in the middle of the uh, offices on the second floor of the casino was an envelope lying on the floor which looked to him to be very suspicious. So he and uh, a deputy from the local sheriff's department took broomsticks and began poking the envelope with the broomsticks. Uh, but they took care to, to shelter behind this grey box in yeah. case the envelope contained anything dangerous. So they established after a little while of poking that the envelope contained only a letter. And then they read the letter and they realised that the large box they were sheltering behind contained a little shy of a 1,000 pounds of dynamite. 
and they call in the experts. The experts x-ray it. What does the letter claims inside the box and what do x-rays of the box show to be inside? A lot of something that looks very dense that could be almost a thousand pounds of explosives and a lot of booby traps is what the letter says is inside the box. So there are eight different ways of, of the thing exploding. Yeah. And it has a timer and the timer is sealed inside and the letter explains that as a result even the person that built it can't prevent it exploding and it has to be removed somewhere else so they can go off without hurting anyone. And there's no way of getting inside it because if you try and drill into it then it's lined with foil and neoprene in layers so that if you drill into it you make a contact and set the bomb off. It has all these other methods of booby trapping so if you tried to fill it with water or foam to disarm it, there's a toilet float, a toilet system float inside it. So if you filled it with water, that would go up and then the bomb would go off. There were pressure switches from the, like the kind of switches that set off dome lights in cars that were ringed at the top of the box. So if you tried to unscrew the top of the box and lift it off, then those switches would open and then the bomb would go off. Was this real? Was everything you're describing actually inside the box? Oh, everything I'm describing was inside the box, and more, actually, because the, the letter listed several different ways of setting the bomb off, some of which may or may not have been in the bomb in reality. Yeah. There was uh, a claim about disruptions in the Richter scale that probably wasn't true. What he says is there's a trembler switch inside the device that will go off and then list some statistic of the Richter scale. But actually there was a device inside the bomb so that if you moved it, it would go off. But it was a pendulum inside a piece of plumbing pipe. So this is flat out an amazing piece of evil engineering. He was very, very smart. And even now the, the, the FBI agents and the prosecutor, if you've talked to them, they, they will tell you that they were kind of in admiration of the workmanship that went into this thing. So whose job was it to decide how to attack the box? It was put directly under the responsibility of the, the head of the bomb squad for the local fire department in Douglas County, who was a guy named Danny Daniel, who was an ex-army EOD guy who had served in Vietnam. He handled the bomb threats in the local area and the, when, if they had extortion attempts in the local casinos. But backing him up were these experts from Lawrence Livermore, from naval bomb disposal. There were people from the Nuclear Emergency Search Team, which is this kind of slightly forgotten organization that had just been set up very recently in order to combat issues of nuclear terrorism. Wow. So these guys flew in from all over the country yeah. to be there and try and figure out how to defuse this thing. And the top minds sign off on a plan. If you could describe the plan and what was their confidence that the plan would work to defuse the bomb? It's a, at this distance, it's a little bit difficult to tell what their confidence was because they had a long roundtable meeting after the initial deadline listed in the letter had expired. And they, they threw out every idea they could think of. And then they decided that, that at the suggestion of this guy from, from Indian Head, they were going to use a linear-shaped charge to cut the device in half and therefore separate the bit that had all the triggering mechanisms in it from the part of the bomb that they thought had all the explosives in it. So it was going to be an explosive charge to defuse a giant explosive charge. Of those people around the table, how many did you talk to? Two, three. And did they all say... Oh, there, was like a, there were probably 14 or 15 people around the table. And did those you talked to say, we thought this was the best chance we had, we thought it would work, we thought if we yeah, didn't well, they, do something... Yeah, they, they, had, no, they yeah. had no better idea. Yeah. They were just faced with the fact this thing was going to go off somehow. Yeah. 
And if they didn't do anything about it, it was going to go off without them controlling it. So they cordon off the area. They get all the people out of there. They try their thing. It does not work. Any loss of life? No, nobody was injured at all. And then let's put the bomb aside and the mechanics of the explosion aside. Now we're trying to find who set the bomb. Who was it? How they go about researching this? In fact, the prosecutor told me quite recently that he believed that they interviewed every human being who was in Lake Tahoe that weekend. They conducted an investigation that lasted about a year, and they eventually discovered that it was this Hungarian emigre who had come to the United States in the wake of the um, Hungarian uprising in 1956 with nothing and had become a very successful landscaper in California. But then he had bankrupted himself on the gambling tables in Lake Tahoe and eventually decided that he was going to get his money back by putting into motion this extortion plot. His name is John Burgess? That's right. And where did he come by his genius for explosives? Well, as a landscaper, he had worked a lot with dynamite, blowing ditches and wells in the ground as part of, you know, setting up kind of irrigation schemes. But he was, not, he was not a scientist back in Hungary. He was... No, but he was, he was, a, a he was an extremely devoted tinkerer. Yeah. He was, had a long history of kind of building things in his garage, and he had a very well-equipped machine shop. How did the authorities glom on to him? Did they start looking through the rolls of who owed them a lot of money? They interviewed Harvey Gross, who was the owner of the casino, over and over again. But Harvey was like 76 years old mm -hmm. and really couldn't think, not only could he not think of anyone who bore enough of a grudge against him to want to completely destroy his casino and his life's work, but a lot of the time he just couldn't remember very much about anything. Yeah. But what happened is that they had used, John Burgess had, had enlisted the help of his two teenage sons in building this device. And in order to deliver the bomb to the casino, which they did in the early hours of the morning, the day that it was discovered, uh, they used his son's van. And he and his two accomplices, Burgess and his two accomplices, had checked into a motel nearby the night before. And although Burgess had taken great care not to be seen, so only his accomplices were seen with the van, uh, the motel owners took down the registration number of the van. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, as a tiny portion of this massive investigation that was conducted for a very long time, they started checking in on this van. And the van led them to John Burgess. And then when they turned up at his house, he said, oh, oh no, it's, it's, that's not my van. That's registered to my son. You, you need to go and talk to my son. So they talked to his son. After the bombing and they get their man, what happens to him? What John, happens to Burgess? What happens to John Burgess? He went to prison. Died in prison. He died in prison. And did he talk about the bombing much afterwards? He would talk about the bombing, but he stuck to his story, which was that he was put up to it by organized crime. And that story seems to, in your opinion, not flesh out? Well, not, I mean, not, not only my opinion, but the opinion of the FBI, who went to some lengths to investigate it. So John Burgess Sr. was smart, say, brilliant enough to build this bomb and to get it inside the casino, smart enough to make a fortune in landscaping as, you know, an immigrant to this country. But did the plan ever really have a chance to make him the money he sought? Oh, yeah. They nearly got away with it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They very nearly got away with it. How did the money part work? Big John arranged an extremely complex ransom drop involving helicopter delivery to a remote mountain clearing. 
the helicopter was due to arrive with $3 million in $100 bills. And then he and his son, Jim, would overpower the helicopter pilot at gunpoint. Then Big John, who was a pilot, would fly the helicopter to a second location, hand the money off to John Jr., who was waiting with the car. And then Big John would take the helicopter and ditch it somewhere else. And then everybody would rendezvous back in Clovis, which is where they lived. Mm -hmm. And then Big John and his girlfriend would take the money to Europe and launder it there and then distribute the funds accordingly. And so how far did they get along in that plan? Well, the FBI were, were on their way up to the mountain clearing in a helicopter with two money bags. Really? Stuffed with $1,000 in cash and what would approximate the volume and weight of the remaining part of $3 million in scrap paper. Well, when the helicopter got there, Burgess wasn't there? They never found him. Oh, so the helicopter got they there. They could never make the drop work. But when he was arrested, he was in the middle of planning a second bombing, which he planned to ask for $5 million in ransom for. And what was his target? Either Harvey's, again. Oh, my God. Which by that time had been rebuilt. Yeah. Or the Bank of America building in San Francisco. Amazing. And so what do you th what's the legacy of this bombing? The FBI keep a replica of this bomb in Quantico that they still use in training. So future generations of bomb squad people and the best anti-bomb minds have at least trained on it. It's taught something and given something to the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure that certainly Bill Jonke, who was the case agent for the Nevada side of the investigation, told me that, that if he saw it today, he still wouldn't know how to defuse it. Adam Higginbotham's A Thousand Pounds of Dynamite is available at atavist.com. It's a Kindle single. It's a ripping, literally, good yarn. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. And now the spiel. I get the New York Times delivered to my door every day. I know, it's crazy. The actual New York Times. Someone can steal it. Sometimes they do. Someone can urinate on it. Sometimes they do. But the question is, why get the actual paper when you could read it online? Or better yet, read articles in Gawker quoting from it. Or even better yet, read tweets about Gawker quoting articles. And not even the articles. Just words, two-word phrases, seven-letter phrases. The phrase that I'm thinking about today is the phrase, no angel. It came in a sentence in an article about the tragically killed Ferguson, Missouri teen Michael Brown. The first three paragraphs of the piece detailed a call Brown had made to his father a couple months ago, where he claimed he had seen a vision of an angel in clouds in the sky. And the fifth paragraph begins, Michael Brown, 18, due to be buried on Monday, was no angel, with public records and interviews with friends and family, revealing both problems and promise in his young life. No angel is a cliche of a phrase. So are the following phrases, rough patches, went their separate ways, under one roof. All of those phrases appeared in the article. But to the Twitterverse, no angel was an indictment of the New York Times, of journalism, of society. I see it as two words that plainly should not have been written because they caused such a distraction from the overall piece. The overall piece was trying to square the life of a boy who is praised in public by friends, families, and mourners, and smeared by implication when a report was released that showed marijuana in his system, and when a tape was released that showed him shoving a store clerk after allegedly stealing a pack of cigars.
Some of the tweets with the hashtag NoAngel just listed some of the things Twitter users did when they were 18 years old. The point being, no one's an angel. Good point. Then came the bad points. Alicia Jarvis, 278. Dear New York Times public editor, I was no angel in my teens and early 20s either. Do I deserve to die? Stop victim blaming. Someone who changed their name to No Angel Either. Hey, Jay Elegon, he's the writer of the article. Hey, at New York Times, I'm no angel either. Do I deserve to get shot by the cops? What a repugnant piece you wrote. Gene Rigg, R.E. the horrifying New York Times article. No angel, people deserve to be shot on sus by police, do they? Be careful what you wish for, journalists. Nowhere. In this piece, does it say, or come close to implying, that Michael Brown deserved to die? The writer, John Elegon, a black man in his 30s, has written sensitively about race, politics, crime, and hip-hop. I mentioned that last one because the Times critics today were saying that the paper mentioned that Michael Brown had taken to rapping, and that was part of their indictment of Brown as being unangelic. Or maybe it was, you know, that he was into rapping. If you follow the No Angel hashtag, you would just believe that the New York Times wrote a smear story on Michael Brown. But here are some other phrases in that story. Michael Brown regularly flashed a broad smile that endeared those around him. Michael Brown was joking and outgoing to those close with him. Michael Brown was contemplative, sometimes philosophical. Michael never threw a punch in his life. Michael was, quote, probably the person that was most serious in his class about graduating. See, I know this because I read the whole article. The whole article. Not only that, but I also read the whole article on the police officer who shot Brown. Critics wanted to know, hey, why was Michael Brown described in one manner, but Officer Darren Wilson was described as, quote, soft-spoken and even bland? One explanation is out-of-control racism. The other is that people often describe Darren Wilson as soft-spoken and bland. Not only did I read the article, in fact, those two articles that were printed today, I know, a huge sacrifice, I read old New York Times stories. Because so many people were linking to Kia Marcarici's article on the Vanity Fair website detailing, quote, who the New York Times calls no angel. He lists mobsters, a Nazi, and Columbine killers who are all white. Macarici concludes, A sample of the white folks the Times has called no angel includes infamous mobsters, murderers, a pornographer, and a Nazi. Black Americans described similarly by the paper include a basketball player, a singer, criminal suspects, and unarmed men killed by white people. Guess what? I could search the Times archives too, and I did. It's not just Nazis and murderers among the white people who were called no angel. A hockey player was called no angel. Chris Spezio, a baseball player, was called no angel. Elena Stasi, a tennis player, was called no angel. These were all scrappy-type players. There was a hard-living member of the Black Sheep Squadron, also called no angel. If you look at the black men who were called no angel by the Times, not just all singers and basketball players. Joseph Jojo Bowen, who killed a Philadelphia policeman, was called no angel. Clayton Lockett, who shot a young woman and watched as his accomplice buried her alive, was also called No Angel. In short, the entire premise of that Vanity Fair article is, as far as I could tell, nonsense. Bunch of cherry-picked examples that do not in any way seem to correlate to a real trend. But it appeared in Vanity Fair's feed to 1.64 million followers. The Times, John Elegon, the public editor, they now all agree that No Angel was a dumb phrase. As for the deeper systemic rot this exposes... 
I say it exposes no rot at all, or at least this one article doesn't demonstrate it. Journalists are imperfect. Phrases don't always land right, and often loud segments of the public want to read the report they want to read, not the report you're trying to write. If you want the story of Ferguson or of Michael Brown, it won't be captured in a thousand words or even a hundred thousand. But the story in today's paper gets at his essence a little better than the seven-letter, two-word phrase said to sum up the entire story. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is something of the Frank Hobart of producers of Slate Podcast, though unlike the Republican vice president to McKinley, she does favor the silver standard. Andy Bowers is oft referred to as the Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. of executive producers of Slate Podcasts. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Also, we're on Yo. Here's how Yo Yo's. You go to Yo, you sign up, and then you follow Podcast. That's our Yo name, Podcast. And you get Yo'd as soon as the podcast is ready to go. Go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for an email. It's like a Yo, except longer and more detailed, and you can play it right from your inbox as soon as it hits. Facebook.com slash slate gist is our Facebook page, and our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. The gist is guided by the immortal words of William Elman Wheeler, Republican vice president to Rutherford B. Hayes, who said, quote, Mr. Conkling, there is nothing in the gift of the state of New York which will compensate me for the forfeiture of my self-respect. And with that, he turned away from Roscoe Conkling, bid him a good day, and in a tone that's since been described as acidic, whispered, and thanks for listening. But mad dogs and Englishmen go out to the midday sun.